Recalcitrant command priests who have the care of souls to frequently explain some of the mysteries of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. So this morning we'll take a quick look at a few things. First, the fundamental liturgical principle, then a principle that underlies the celebration of Mass, and then finally some aspects of the solemn high Mass. The most basic liturgical principle that we need to remember is that what we do in here determines what goes on out there in the world. What we do in here determines what goes on out there. The most divine thing we can participate in this side of heaven is the sacred liturgy. During the holy sacrifice of the Mass, the floodgates of heaven open up and all the graces come pouring down off the altar through the congregation out across all creation, across all things, visible and invisible. It's something to think about this spring when you hear the videoquam instead of the Spiritus May before Mass. This is the most important thing in the universe. When things are properly done, our liturgy raises earth up to, towards the level of heaven. And it reorders and fixes the damage done by Adam and his descendants. It called graces down on each one of us here, on all the living and the dead throughout the church. It frees souls from purgatory to flee to heaven. It converts sinners. It stomps the devils right back into hell. What we do here determines what goes on out there right here on the very threshold of heaven, and that's what an altar is. It's a threshold of heaven. It's the very edge of heaven. And here, at the Holy Sac Sacrifice of the Mass, it's God's design that this is where we learn who God is, who we really are, what His church is, what the priesthood is, what men really are, what women really are the principles of how we're actually supposed to behave. That's how God set up reality. What we do in here determines what goes on out there. And the enemy knows that. That's why he hates us, and especially priests. The members of the mystical body of Satan, like the Satanists, do their liturgies, their incantations, their spells and hexes, to raise hell, to literally increase the sin chaos and disorder in the world to free the demons to roam about seeking whom they can devour. <coughs> Liturgy controls reality and we're at war. And the enemy hasn't forgotten that. But have we? Do we really give serious thought to the fact that we're in the church militant? Militant, that's the church at war. And we're at war. What we do in here determines what goes on out there. And yet so many Catholics are lackadaisical about getting to Mass. You think a devil worshiper is going to blow off his weird ceremonies around the time of the solstice? Oh well, he'll be back next year. Not hardly. But how many Catholics will blow off coming to the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass so they can get to a game or do some other foolish thing? And then they complain that the world's going to hell. Well, get a clue. What we do in here determines what's going on out there. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about another principle. Why did Christ establish his church? 
for the glory of God and the salvation of souls. That's supposed to be our basic operating principle. So let's take a minute to look at that, and we can see a principle that underlies the celebration of Mass that doesn't seem to be clearly understood by a lot of devout Catholics. As a theologian, Father Nicholas Gere noted over a century ago, quote, on the part of church, high mass solemnly celebrated has greater value and efficacy than merely a low mass. At a solemn high mass, the external display is richer and more brilliant than at a low mass, and God is more glorified thereby. This grander and more solemn celebration of the sacrifice is more acceptable to God and therefore better calculated to prevail upon him to grant us, in his mercy, the favors which we implore. Close quote. High Mass solemnly celebrated has greater value and efficacy than merely a low Mass. God is more glorified thereby. It's more acceptable to God. What, is, what are we saying? expressing something theologically that lies under it. We're here to give greater honor and glory of God. The greater external glory we give to Him, the more He's going to reward us with graces. And that's true, most particularly in this most solemn all events, the divine liturgy. If we give more glory and honor to Him, He'll give us more graces. So all other things being equal, we ought to celebrate solemn masses whenever we can, since that way we can more perfectly express our commitment to live for the glory of God's salvation of souls. That's not always possible. That's not always even reasonable. We understand that. But the basic principle here is no matter what we do, we want to give the maximum glory to God, whether the mass is sang or sung, said or sung. That has consequences with respect to all kinds of things, the art, the architecture, the vestments, the vessels, and your clothing, and your behavior, how you come to Mass has consequences on the grace received in the Mass. There's a corollary. What do you suppose if we're sloppy about how we celebrate the Mass as ministers up at the altar? What if we cut corners? What if instead of following the instructions in the Missal, I decide to do my own little workshop up here. We give less glory to God, and so you lose graces. Wait a minute, you're the faithful. Are you saying that the guys in the sanctuary who are doing the ceremonies can mess things up, and that will have consequences on all the faithful, and you'll get less graces? We are saying that. That's exactly what we're saying. That may seem horrible or not fair, but that's reality. What we do in here determines what goes on out there. Make a comparison. If you parents aren't keeping a good Catholic home, if you're not saying the daily rosary, if you're not enforcing the rules, won't your children get less graces? Absolutely they will. There's no question. That's not horrible and that's not unfair. When God puts people in charge of things, they know to be responsible. If they don't do their duties, everyone below suffers. And this is a reason why we're all seriously obligated before God to pray for our leaders, religious and political, that they do their duty before God. Because we're all weak and we're all sinners, every one of us. We don't have to look any farther than our own hearts to see how bad each one of us are. This situation, of course, is more serious for priests. Why is that? 
because priests have been chosen by God to stand in the gap, to be the official mediators or go-betweens between God and man. And since their job is more serious, since they offer the official sacrifice for living and dead, they have to do their duty as perfectly as is possible. Again, it goes back to that first principle. What we do in here determines what goes on out there in the world. Since we offer the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, that means, among other things, we must follow the rubrics as carefully as possible. The rubrics are the name for the rules on how Mass is to be said, where I'm supposed to be looking, how my hands are supposed to be held, how loud or quiet a voice I'm to be using at any particular time, and so forth. This is so serious and solemn a duty for the priest that the doctor of moral theology, St. Alphonsus the Glory, teaches, quote, the rubrics of the Mass are serious commands, and they oblige so strongly that they indeed they oblige the priest under the pain of mortal sin, except for light matters, close quote. The rubrics of the Mass bind me under the pain of mortal sin, except for light matters. So if I'm up there goofing around or changing anything deliberately, I'm in big trouble. Now that may sound surprising, but it's easy to understand. We don't decide what pleases God. If the little red letters tell me to hold my hands like this or like this, that's what God wants me to do. It's just plain flat, cut, and dry. I'm not in charge. I'm not going to have a better idea. God doesn't need my advice. He didn't forget anything. He already knows everything. And he doesn't need me to remind him of anything. It's cut and dry. I have to do my duty. Let's put some current events in a little clear focus then. All the scandalous behavior that we might have been reading about in the papers is nothing compared to deliberate liturgical abuse. Why is that? Because as evil as these offenses are, and we're not saying they're not evil, they're not direct insults offered directly to God in an official sacrifice rendered unto Him. What we do in here determines what goes on out there. The divine liturgy is the most important thing in the universe. It's not a place for my personal good ideas. Okay, Father, let's get this straight. We've seen that the purpose of the church is to give glory to God and save souls. And if everything else is the same, we should celebrate Mass with the greatest solemnity possible. Why? Because it, it gives you more external glory to God. He finds that more pleasing. He'll grant us more graces. And we've seen that you as the priest are bound under the pain of mortal sin to observe the rubrics. And if you as the priest are goofing around, we get less grace. That's correct. All right, now that we have some idea of why we're doing these solemn masses, it might be some nice to have some idea of what's going on with all these guys wandering around up here. Why are there three guys? What's the significance of the three guys' investments? Why do we sit during the epistle and put on our little hats? Why does the one guy, which you'll see in a while here, keep a big piece of cloth in front of his eyes during the whole canon of the Mass? Now, I'm going to give one answer to at a time to each one of those, but I want to tell you that this isn't going to be complete because we could talk for a month on this question. First, what's the mystical significance of the three ministers? The priest, that's me, is acting in persona Christi. That's a Latin phrase, which means I'm acting in the person of Christ at the altar. It means during the holy sacrifice of the Mass, I symbolize Christ, and he uses me to offer himself up to the Eternal Father. The next guy down is a deacon, Deacon Langeway. He signifies the Catholic Church 
and the Gentile nations. The guy on the bottom step, which we're happy to have here today, our own uh, John Trausch, is the subdeacon. He signifies the Jewish church and the Jewish nation. So Christ, Gentiles, Jews. Okay, why do we sit down during the epistle, as you saw a little while ago, when uh, Mr. Trausch was singing the epistle, why do we sit down and put on our little hats? The little hats are called berettas. Why do we sit down and cover our heads when the subdeacon is singing the epistle? Remember, liturgically speaking, we're not talking about exactly on the compass, but liturgically speaking, the altar faces east. So that means that side liturgically is south and this side liturgically north. The south side is the Jewish side. The subdeacon symbolizes the Jews, so he sings the epistle from the south side. The Jews knew the true God, he loved them, and out of all the nations in the world, all the nations descended from Noah, he chose them. God considered them to be his eldest son. He sent Moses to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my eldest son, let my people go. So God loved them as an eldest son. He chose them for his own people. He chose to send his son, his only begotten son, to become incarnate as one of them, as a Jew. And yet as we see time and time and again in the scriptures, they couldn't be bothered with Christ's saving message. So we sit down and cover our heads, symbolizing the Jewish response to the preaching of the gospel. They sit unmoved by the saving message of Christ, and their heads remain covered. In fact, Jewish men traditionally pray with their heads veiled, covered with a prayer veil, which mystically signifies the mysteries of redemption have not yet been unveiled to them. Their minds remain uh, darkened to the supernatural truths of salvation. Why do we stand and take off our bridges during the gospel? The Catholic Church is made up of the Gentile nations. North is the direction of the Gentile nations, the nations of the north. Those are the prodigal sons, the Gentiles, the pagan peoples. Standing shows the eagerness of the pagan nations to act on the saving message of the gospel in contrast to the Jews who had the true religion and were uninterested. The heads are uncovered to show that the mysteries of redemption have now been revealed and the headship lost in Adam has now been restored in Christ. Okay, Father, but if the subdeacon symbolizes the Jews, God's eldest son, why is he in second place instead of first place when the three sacred ministers line up on the altar? For the most part, the Jews didn't respond to the saving message of Christ. So the Gentiles, the nations, have taken the place of the firstborn son, which is signified by the deacon being on the second stair. The subdeacon is now in the second place, which is the Gentiles' place. The Catholic Church has taken the place of the Jewish Church. The reason why the subdeacon's on a lower level is he was first, shall be last. All right, but why will he keep his cloth in front of the face during Mass, which you'll see here shortly after the Creed? We can easily see why the subdeacon keeps the hymnal veil in front of his eyes during the whole canon of the Mass. As we've learned recently, until the preaching of Prophet Elias at the end of the world, the Jews will refuse to join their Gentile brothers and will remain outside the Catholic Church. Until then, the mysteries of our holy religion will be veiled to their understanding, which the subdeacon will symbolically portray by holding the veil in front of his eyes during the canon of the Mass. Of course, at the end of the world, we know, Elias will preach to them and they'll convert and finally claim their inheritance, which is symbolically portrayed after the canon of the Mass, when the subdeacon finally takes off the veil and assists the deacon and the priest in the distribution of communion, 
then he'll receive the blessing on exactly the same level as the deacon, and finally he'll hold up the last gospel at the very end of the Mass. Now this is one of the mystical significances, but don't think that exhausts it. Off the top of my head standing here, I can think of the significance has to do with Noah, with the second coming, with the Pope, without any effort. There's a, there's a whole layers of meaning in each one of these actions. And that's just for the three people. It's not all other stuff going on. Okay, let's review. God set up reality so that what we do in here determines what goes on out in there. Liturgy controls reality. We've seen the purpose of the church is to give glory to God, save souls, and given a choice, we should always celebrate the divine liturgy with the most solemnity and seriousness possible. Why? Because it gives more external glory to God, and external glory to God is more pleasing to Him. He'll reward us with, he'll reward us with more graces. We've seen that the priest is bound by the rubrics under the pain of mortal sin. If he goofs around, it costs everybody grace. We've seen a few details about the solemn mass. The priest stands for Christ, the deacon for the Gentiles and the Catholic Church, the subdeacon for the Jews and the Jewish Church. We've seen the deacon standing above the subdeacon symbolizes the Gentiles receiving the inheritance that Christ came to preach to the Jews. We've seen that the veiling of the subdeacon's eyes during the canon of the mass mystically symbolizes the rejection of the saving truth of Catholicism to the end of the world. Let's end with a few reflections for ourselves. Remembering that what we do in here determines what goes on out there, ask ourselves, when we come to Mass, are we dressing properly and behaving in a reverent manner? Are we preparing our souls by good sacramental confessions? Are we uniting ourselves with the holy sacrifice before the floodgates open up and all the graces come down? Are we thanking God for all the gifts of nature and grace he's poured down upon us? Are we adoring him because he's infinitely good and worthy of all our love? Are we making reparation for our sins and those of the whole world? Are we asking for the graces we need to become holy? Are we praying for those we're most bound to pray for or those most in need of our prayers? Are we asking God to make our leaders holy? Remember that what we do in here determines what goes on out there. O Mary, conceive without sin. Pray for us who have recourse to thee.